journey back through the scriptures with Professor John Walton of Wheaton College, author of nearly 40 books who has spoken around the world presenting his lost world propositions. Professor Walton offers a thought-provoking re-examination of the biblical text based on years of research. Author Dina Dye of Foundations in Torah has spent nearly 40 years connecting Jesus back to her Jewish heritage and the Hebrew scriptures. Both speakers will discuss the fact that our Bible was not written to us, but to an ancient audience, and how an ancient people would have understood their world. Nevertheless, the scriptures were proposed for every generation. Attend the Lost World Conference, September 7th and 8th in Puyallup. Seating is very limited for this special two-day event. If you are curious about the ancient world that God used to inspire the Bible, you won't want to miss the Lost World Conference. Visit jeffsmorton.com for locations, times, and details. Register on the website or call 253-448-4777. Visit jeffsmorton.com. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Morton, one of your hosts for Returning to Eden, and, of course, my co-host, Dr. Dina Dye. Hello, Dina. Hello, Jeff. How are you this morning? I am doing fast, fantastic, and... Uh, you know, we, we're kind of come full circle now. We have, we have Professor John Walton with us. Good morning, John. Good morning. <laughs> okay, so today folks, today, folks, we're going to have John Walton. Uh, he has written several books. He is a professor at Wheaton College. Of course, most of you know Dr. Dina Dye, who's written a couple of books and has been speaking the Word of God for 40 years now around the country. And so we're going to, uh, in anticipation of John Walton's visit and Dr. Dina Dye's visit to uh, the Pacific Northwest coming up September the 7th and 8th with the Lost World Conference, uh, we're going to have a conversation, uh, just kind of get to know one another a little bit better today on today's broadcast. Now, if mo many of you have not, are not aware that Professor John Walton of Wheaton College has written several books which he titles The Lost World of Genesis, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, The Lost World of Scripture, The Lost World of the Torah, the most recent book that he's put out that I know of. Uh, so the reason we named the conference The Lost World Conference is because we're going to get into a lot of the research that he brings, and certainly Dr. Dina Dye or Dina. Uh, you know, she's, she's working on studying the temple and why the temple was important. And so we're going to bring all of that to you, September the 7th and the 8th here in Puyallup, Washington. So uh, with that, I'm going to just welcome Dina Dye. Dina, good morning, my friend. Good morning, Jeff. It's great to be here, and I'm very excited about the conference, uh, especially having Dr. John Walton with us. For me, it's an honor. Uh, John, you're an inspiration. You have kind of transformed my own scholarship and research, and I'm uh, eternally grateful for all your, I don't know, what, 30-plus years of work? Something like that? <laughs> Boy, over 40 now. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, uh, and of course, uh, for me, I mean, we, uh, I would like to talk more with you about some of the things and just also about your personal life because I think people, uh, people like to hear those little cool details about someone uh, before they get to, to meet them. And I'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, Jeff. You can ask, kind of start the questioning, if you will. But uh, we're very excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here, and uh, yeah, that conference will be coming up here. What? Just about a month now. Just about a month. And Dina, I I should mention too, you're not going to get away with uh, not talking a little bit about yourself as well. Because, <laughs> okay. uh, 
But, you know, our audience knows me pretty well. Yeah, but we've got – actually, we have a lot of new people that have joined us on the Return to Eden. So, uh, John Walton, how did you – I mean, I've I've read enough of your information to know a little bit about your background. But you were raised in a Christian home, and then all of a sudden you ended up as a professor. Can you kind of walk us through – your life, uh, give us a, a brief synopsis of how you ended up where you are today. Sure, be happy to. Um, when So I was raised, as you said, in a Christian home, and it was not just a Christian home. It was a home that was filled with the Bible. Um, my home and my church, we talked about the Bible a lot. We learned the Bible uh, I learned more about Old Testament in grade school than most people ever learn in their lives just because of the way that I was raised. So I, I developed a love for the Old Testament and um, was interested in it from my earliest memories. But when, it got time to go to, when it got time to go to college, um, I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And, of course, I loved Old Testament, but I couldn't think of any career path with Old Testament. So I went to college majoring in accounting and economics because that's what the vocational test said I should do. And being a compliant child, I did that. But that has time alone. I figured I that did accounting I, too, John. I, I did accounting as well, and I was like, wow, this isn't doing me any good. Well, if, it, yeah. if you want to know, I did the same thing. I went to college for accounting. <laughs> I hated it. That's funny. I hated it too. <laughs> but go ahead, John. So anyway, I got to my junior year, and I said, wait a minute. Do I really want to be an accountant? Um, you know, the world needs lots of good accountants, but, you know, that that. That may not be the route for me. So I did my, you know, kind of inventory, passions, gifts, you know, you know the deal. And said, well, I really love Old Testament. I just wish there was something I could do with that as a career because there's nothing in the world you can do with Old Testament unless you're going to teach it or something. And that, and it just struck me that I never thought of that. There, there are people who teach Old Testament. Oh, that'd be so cool. So, so that's changed immediately. Started taking Hebrew and Greek. And went on my academic path. Now, when so, you, when the light went on for you in terms of, you know, the the, the verbiage and looking at the Bible through the authority of the writer, when did that really kind of grab a hold of you? Well, again, I was raised that way to some extent. I've shaped how I talk about it, and that's come gradually. Um, so. But I was raised with that view of the Bible, and so to figure out exactly what terminology to use and how to frame a hermeneutic around it, a methodology that would help me respect that, that's just taken taken time to shape. But it's been, I mean, it's not like my view ever changed at all. It's just a matter of development, of, of putting all the pieces together and communicating it as well as I can. Well, it's a rare view. I mean, is that how your parents thought? Is that how the day communicate that view to you? I don't recall whether they did or not. Again, we consider the Bible inspired, inerrant, God's revelation, having authority, all of those terms. When I started talking about the 
author's intentions, um, that was probably later on in the mix. Okay. Well, and that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? How, I mean, and this is the question people ask, how on earth do we figure out what the author's intent was? How do we, how do we wrestle with the author's interpretation of it? And, and, and that's and not only, Well, not only that, but, but how do we, you know, extrapolate the cultural integrity by which that intent was being produced? Th these are questions that are just not, we don't even discuss this. I have never discussed this as a Christian believer in the 40 years that I've been, you know, walking this journey. And yet that's kind of paramount, which is what attracts me to your work so much, John. Yeah, well, that's that's really that the hang-up. People say we can't get into their minds, and we really can't even get into their culture very much. So how are we supposed to assess their intentions? Uh, the basic fundamental premise of my work is to say, I'm not trying to get into their minds. I'm just assuming they're effective communicators. And we assume that in every conversation we ever have. Uh, I Even talking here with the two of you, I can't get into your minds, but I assume that you can communicate effectively what, what you want to talk about. And so I assume the same thing of the narrators, the prophets, whoever they might be in the biblical text. So I'm assuming that they're going to communicate clearly the things that I need to know to understand their intentions. That still leaves the culture piece on the table because they're communicating clearly to people in their culture, but I'm not in their culture. Right. And so that becomes the second piece of the puzzle. We have the literary communicative piece, and then we have the cultural piece. And the cultural piece is can be a lot of work uh, to try to, to understand the culture as best we can. We will never understand it perfectly, not even close, but we can make a lot of progress just by understanding many of the ways in which we think differently than they do. Because as we start to understand that, we can start pulling off the table the things that are just the product of our own thinking. And once we remove those, then there we have a better chance of trying to figure out how they're thinking. And I think that's just been the biggest battle, is not is tr instructing people not to insert their own modern mind into the text. Right. Uh, you know, we can go round and round. The, the, the cultural aspect of it has been a huge challenge to me and uh, to try to communicate that to the folks. So in our tribe, in the world that uh, Jeff and I work in, uh, there's a tendency to rely on the authority of the rabbis. But, you know, modern rabbis into, into the Middle Ages, going back into the Middle Ages, they didn't even look back at the cultural context so we don't really see this anywhere. And so, you know, Jeff and I have been intent on trying to get people back there looking at, you know, the historical context and, and everything else. It, it's really been a challenge. I'm sure you mm -hmm. must run into that. Mm -hmm. Well, as you know, I went to a Jewish school, and so I was trained by rabbis. Um, yeah. And uh, they'd be one of the first ones to tell you that the rabbis don't have authority. The rabbis have respect, but not authority, because the whole premise of the rabbinic conversations had to do with presenting a wide variety of, of positions and opinions. 
and they right. never come down to say, and this one's right and those are wrong. It's that variety, diversity of interpretive opinions, uh, in which case they don't want you, they want you to respect them, but not the authority that says, this is the right way. You know, and I think a lot of people in our, uh, you know, walking, with, walking this out with the Lord, we don't understand that. We, we, because I've, I've read a lot of rabbinic material, and I'm like, some of this stuff is like gobbledygook. On the other hand, it's worth reading and investigating and learning what they know and having the conversation. And I think a lot of times we close our minds off to what they offer, uh, whether it be, say, I've read, you know, 11th century rabbis and, uh, you know, I've read enough material to where I see the most of them around that time frame, Dean, and I, I'm sure you will agree with that. We're trying to distance the entire community away from Jesus. And so that is where the disconnect happens with a lot of people. And yet, I always ask pastors, if they didn't believe it, why do you read the material they wrote every Sunday? And it, it, just a quandary comes up. In other words, we have to return the scriptures back to Israel, in my mind, in order to walk forward. And like you say, John, even 200 years ago, we had different culture in this nation. So when you present that information to the average biblical person, you know, you've got a variety of cultures spanning the length of the Bible that you kind of have to get connected to. It, it's almost impossible but you have to go back there in order to even have a, a starting point with trying to understand the authority. And a lot of people don't. We superimpose our understanding on the entire work. It doesn't work. That's what I love about your work, both of you guys. Well, that's the, the basic idea when I talk about the Bible is for us but not to us. Right. Um, most people today really are only interested in how the Bible is for them, how it helps me out today. And I get that, uh, but what I keep saying is we have to do the hard work to figure out first what it meant to them, the people who it was written to, because that's our pathway to finding out what the Bible has to say for us. But lots of people just want to get the immediate payoff. Right. Or, or so the John, prophetic um, payoff. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, John, you, you consider yourself to be a text analyst. So could you yeah. just explain that to our audience? Well, again, it's the basic idea that I want to do everything that I need to do to analyze what, especially the biblical text, but also the ancient Near Eastern texts, what they are actually saying. Uh, literarily, linguistically, contextually, um, I want to understand that literature. So in that sense, I'm a text analyst. I deal with words and the meanings of words. I deal with the way that those words are built into sentences and discourses. I deal with the way that a book is put together to try to understand the ways that every part of the biblical book contributes to the overall purpose of the author. That's all a matter of text analysis. And to that extent, uh, those are the preliminary tasks that precede doing things like theology or application. Absolutely. You know, a theologian is going to develop the theology, a pastor is going to uh, present the applications, 
and those are important jobs, but they're not what I'm best at. So I, I start at the ground level, and I'm dealing with those issues of what the text actually means. Uh, I, that I bring the ancient Near Eastern texts into that, not because they are the same quality as the biblical text, but because I also want to understand what they have to say in case any of it is usable for my analysis of the biblical text. And many times it is. Well, and that's the place we're trying to bring our audience to. Uh, we appreciate the work you've done because it is foundational. And for me personally, I build off of the things you've done. Um, you know, I'm a teacher. I, I tend to look for patterns in scripture, but I build off that, that textual foundation. I, I'm curious in your own personal life, like how has this approach affected your personal relationship with God and, and just your, your, you know, your personal faith? Well, my relationship with God is built on uh, what I've learned about him from his revelation of himself in the text. And that means that if I'm not understanding the text well, then my relationship with God cannot be all that it could be. Um, many Christians today, for example, are, in, are involved in a faith that for them is transactional. That is, I give to God, God gives to me, we've got a good thing going here. And it's this, let's make a deal. And that's not any way to have a relationship with God because that's simply not how our faith is supposed to work. But unless we um, get to know the text better and to recognize that our faith is not supposed to be transactional, uh, we're not going to have that healthy relationship with God that we ought to have. You know, I want to address that because for years, I mean, <clears throat> for years I didn't see the value of really walking with the Lord because I was too busy making a deal. You know, I mean, I had that. That was literally my my relationship to being a Christian. And then when I started digging into the ancient Near East legal systems, I started connecting the Torah for what it what it, its purpose was, which I love your your new book, The Lost World of Torah, uh, because it it kind of defines it a little differently as opposed to you know some some sort of legal thing that we have to apply to our lives today. And I would encourage people to get the book, The Lost World of Torah. But for me, it wasn't until I started. I remember crying out to the Lord one day in my living room, and I said, you got to show me who you really are, who you really are. And I believe that was the catalyst that began to change my relationship because I started studying as opposed to waiting for somebody to teach me. And that's where I started running into people like you, Dina, and you, John, and so many other academics, and I, I realize the academic world rarely filters down into the pews. And so I'm thinking, man, you really have to study this information out in order to define the kind of relationship you're going to have with the Father. And there's so many brilliant people out there that have done that. So I'm just, I'm just grabbing what you guys have done. But, Dean, I want to ask you a question. When, when did this all happen for you? I mean, tell the audience your story. You were in <laughs> Jerusalem. I mean, you're 25 Jewish. 25 words or less. <laughs> you're Jewish. What happened? Well, you know, I was the ever-wandering Jew uh, searching for truth. You know, I, I'm i the product of the hippie world, you know, turn on, drop out, all that sort of thing. 
So I was always fascinated by the truth, and you know, I got into the New Age movement for a lot of years uh, in search. And I had three things I thought if I ever found the truth, I'd, I'd know that's what it was, and that is that it would be, in my mind, that you know, I'm 29 years old, that it would be easy to understand, and it would be for everyone, and it would be based on love. So that's the criteria I had put together. And I'm not going to go into the whole story, but uh, I traveled around the world for about five years living out of a 14-pound backpack <laughs> search in my 20s and ended up in Israel uh, 1974, just, just after the war, the Yom Kippur War. And I actually met a Christian there, and that was the first time I heard about this person named Jesus and uh, heard about the New Testament. I had never read it. Now, I knew the Old Testament pretty well. I'd gone to Hebrew school and uh, Orthodox Jewish summer camp, and we attended synagogues, especially on the high holidays, like every good conservative Jew. But that, you know, that, that person that I met who kind of instructed me about there was this man named Jesus who was Jewish, lived in Israel, you know, planted seeds. And eventually, uh, when I finally did read the Bible cover to cover in a week, I got to the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And, of course, you know, Yeshua's response, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And for me, that was my moment. And it was shortly after that I attended a, an Assembly of God church, um, you know, made the formal declaration. The pastor there made me the teacher of the youth the week after I came to faith in Messiah. Uh, that was crazy. And the only thing I knew was the Old Testament. I, I didn't know anything. And so that's what I began to teach them. And it occurred to me right out of the gate that somehow these two testaments, if you will, covenants, had to connect. And so that that search began really 40, it'll be 40 years this September. How do I connect the New Testament, the New Covenant? Where is its foundation in the Old Testament? And that's, that was my journey. And, you know, I was summarily removed from various congregations <laughs> over time when I tried to present this. Uh, some pastors were open, many were not. Now, I didn't have any formal training. I was a, a college dropout. Wow. So I, be, you know, I had to go back to school and begin. But I didn't get my uh, my doctorate until the mid '90s because I got married and I had kids and I homeschooled kids. But I was studying and researching all along and teaching wherever I could. So I'm kind of late to the game, but uh, you know I've grown tremendously. And and you know people like like John and various scholars. I you know I just I'm a researcher and uh, also think that the Father's given me a natural gift to be able to connect things. And like I said earlier, you know, my whole thing is patterns. I, I, my lens, as I look through the scriptures and I try to base it on the cultural context, is, you know, creation, new creation, exile, return, um, chaos and order, wisdom and folly. Wisdom has become, for me, you know, the research in that area has been really important. So I appreciated John's book. Um, the Lost World of the Torah, because of uh, the thrust of that being wisdom literature, I'm going, yeah, right on. And, it's, you know, he finally gave credence to what I've been thinking about for about five years. So thank you for that. You, you actually said that uh, 
John's book, you came to the same conclusion. And uh, Yeah, he did it scholarly. I did it just <laughs> processing. <laughs> Intuitively. Yeah. Now, John, exactly. your your story, I mean, I, your son Harvey is in, involved with writing books with you. Uh, your your personal life, you're married. How many children do you have? And, uh, I mean, I think it's to your credit to have your son's name on this book. I, I wish I had a book with my son's name on it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how many children do you have in, in that kind of part of your life? Well, my wife, Kim, and I have been married for 43 years. We have three grown children. They're all in their 30s uh, and all married. No grandkids yet. I have grand dogs. I have grand cats. I have grand degrees, apparently, because they just keep <laughs> going to school. But um, no grandchildren as of yet. Um, they're, it's, it's a pretty intensely academic bunch. Uh, so my oldest son... Uh, his name is Jonathan, but he writes under J. Harvey Walton, so he doesn't get confused with me. Okay. And uh, so he's doing his doctorate at St. Andrews in analytic theology. So he's in Scotland right now. His wife is doing a Ph.D. at Notre Dame in early Christianity. Uh, my second son uh, has his Ph.D. from Harvard in archaeology and Assyriology. And he's an archaeologist, uh, works in Israel every summer. Um, and uh, looking for a full-time teaching job. Right now he's doing adjuncting because his wife is doing a Ph.D. at Ohio State in rural sociology, so they're still in process. That's and then some my daughter street cred is my right youngest. there. <laughs> what? That's some street, street cred, cred yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And uh, then my daughter has just finished a double master's program in library science and public history, and she's an archivist. Um, and so that's what she does, and so, so yeah, it's a it's a happy bunch, and we we have a lot of fun. So I'd like I to be at one of your Thanksgiving dinners. You know, <laughs> uh, people say that a lot, and you know, the conversation around the table is Legos and video games. It's it's. <laughs> I'm sitting here stunned, listening to all this academia. I mean, this is amazing. Yeah. I, I don't know a family alive who has as many people. Uh, in the academic world, I, I, I've, I've never heard of this. <laughs> so That's incredible. So my son and I have done three books together now. Three books, um, right? Because we did the Lost World of the Israelite Conquest and the Lost World of the Torah, and most recently, Demons and Spirits in Biblical Theology. Now that and one I have, I didn't yeah. know about. I didn't That's know about new. that. It's not out yet. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. That just came out two months ago. Oh, Demons and Spirits of Biblical Theology. And I have to well, say, it's mostly his work. Uh, I did enough work to get my name on the cover, but, uh, but it's mostly, mostly his work. And um, I'm really impressed with the things that he's pulled together. Well, you know, I was looking for all of your books that I have, and I have, I have a collection here. And I came across this one, and I went, oh, I forgot I bought that one. <laughs> yeah. I have Old Testament theology for Christians. I've read yeah. no part of this book yet because I didn't know I bought it. Uh, so. <laughs> but anyway, um, well, that one pulls together all of the the hermeneutics that I develop about trying to read the Old Testament in its context, and then from that understanding build theology that's enduring even today. 
So that's the book that lays down that methodology and then actually works it through in uh, various theological categories. Well, I guess I'll have to start reading this one this week, you know. <laughs> Um, John, would you mind touching a bit on your latest book? I mean, this is this is a huge area and kind of problematic, and I'm just curious if you could just give a kind of a takeaway on, you know, without sharing spirits. everything. Well, yeah. we, the the approach we took was we feel like there's there are two extreme views on either side of the conversation. One is the view that says, oh, it's all just psychology and they're demythologizing the text and and you know we don't really take this phenomenology very seriously uh, and the other side is the um, the cosmic warfare model that you know every minute of every day you're battling demons and they're trying to affect you uh, and oh, we yeah. found that those were both kind of extreme views and we thought there was probably something more in the middle that would take account of the biblical text and uh, treat it seriously and treat the phenomenology seriously. Uh, and so that's kind of the path we, we took. So the first couple chapters are all methodology. That's pretty standard for what I do and what my son does. So uh, we try to lay down the methodology. Uh, and then we end up going through every passage in the Bible that either does talk about demons or that people think talks about demons. So there's a chapter on the serpent. There's a chapter on the supposed fall of Satan uh, in Isaiah and Ezekiel. There's uh, chapters on all of the New Testament exorcism passages. Uh, there's chapters on Daniel 10 and uh, Psalm 82. And so we're going through the biblical material uh, to try to figure out exactly what's the Bible doing with these with these issues. Um, we do not try to make a case one way or the other on the phenomenology. We work with the premise that yes, there are demons. Fine, let's talk about what the Bible has to say about them. What does it, places, some places it's teaching you something about them, other places it's just referring to what people in those days believed, and we have to draw a difference between them. So that's pretty much how the book goes, trying to sort those things out. Well, I appreciate that because balance is needed. <laughs> There's just crazy stuff out there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's the one thing you can say about the, the Bible. It is always very balanced if we approach it that way. So w one of the other areas that's problematic, too, kind of relating to this, is the, the natural world versus the supernatural world. And so... The last few hundred years, we're kind of obsessed with the supernatural, uh, but that's not the way the ancient world. I mean, they don't didn't view it the way we view it now. Could you could you talk about that? Sure. Um, again, we quickly divide uh, our experiences uh, in terms of natural and supernatural, uh, and so we talk about miracles, which means that it's supernatural, not natural, and we talk about intervention, which means that. God in his supernaturality, I made that up, uh, steps into the natural world to do something supernatural. So lots of our terminology is all framed around this, this great divide between natural and supernatural. Um, yet at the same time, we've got this theology that we call providence, which talks about God's involvement in the world at all levels. Um, 
And what I've done with this is gone into the ancient world uh, and there discovered that they really don't have the, the categories, natural and supernatural. Right. They are so convinced that God is involved in everything uh, in undeterminable levels that there's nothing called natural. Mm. And if there's nothing called natural, then supernatural becomes a meaningless term. Right. Uh, they have things like regular, ordinary, commonplace, things like that, but that's not defined as natural, meaning God is not in it. And without a category natural, again, supernatural makes no sense whatsoever. So uh, opposite a modern trend to try to make everything natural and only natural, right, naturalism, uh, this is the opposite side that says, no, everything is supernatural. God's involved in it all. At various levels, in various ways, we don't know how. And the Bible says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. We can't parse out, okay, what are the exact parts that God did? What was his involvement? Was he tweaking each, uh, each step in the DNA to figure out which mutations are going? You know, no, it would be silly for us to try to figure that out. But yet we affirm at the same time that God is the one who is at work in that process. So divine agency is affirmed in every process, even the things that we call natural laws and natural science. Yeah. Well, in the in the ancient world, though, they because there was there was such a, a you know everything had to do with the gods. Mankind was basically a servant to the gods or the godhead of that particular community. So. Everything that happened, the weather, the earthquakes, whatever it was, that was in response to something that a god did. So it wouldn't have been a supernatural event. It would have been an act of one of the gods, and that's the way that world would have related to all of it. That's right. kind of what you're saying. Right. The gods were engaged all the way throughout. Right. So their world was basically divided, if you will, between common space and sacred space. It right. seemed to me everything fits somewhere there. And I noticed in the Bible, um, maybe, John, you can help me with this. I found the word halil, which was often uh, the word that's, get, that's uh, translated as profane. But it really, that, that to our modern mind means it's corrupt. But to the ancient world, it simply meant that it was common, correct? Uh, that's going the right direction, yes. Again, we tend to, because we tend to divide the world not only between natural and supernatural, we also tend to divide the world into um, moral categories, good and evil. And that means that we want to take all of those terms and plug them into one or the other. Khalil would be in the category that we would say, oh, well, it's not good because it needs to be fixed, but so it must be evil. But no, that assumes that you've got moral categories. And in the ancient world, they didn't divide the world by moral categories. Uh, and so they tended to think in terms of order and non-order and disorder. I right. talk about those three categories in a number of my books, and those are not moral categories. Um, but that's how they thought about categorizing things. So something that's, that's halil um, largely would fit into the category of non-order that needs to be brought back into order. Um, and so those are the, the kinds of categories that can help us think about things we encounter in the Old Testament and the ancient world. 
By the way, that's the topic that my son's doing his doctoral dissertation on, that three categories, order, non-order, and disorder. Oh, wow. I'm looking forward to that. I'm uh, still working on my, I have a sort of a trilogy series, and I'm working on the uh, Temple Revealed in Noah's Ark, which is why I asked the question, because when Noah came off the ark, it says he he profaned the land and built a vineyard, but he was just establishing common common you know a common area common space not sacred space this is how i viewed it it didn't, it didn't have a moral component to it but when people read it they think that somehow he he corrupted it because that's we in, we insert our moral view of it so i mean uh, my book is um, you know sort of on hold i've been distracted everybody keeps asking me when is it coming out um, but it, it's been a bit of a challenge uh, this this particular book in the series. So I hope next year it's finally finished. Because what I do in my books is I write what I call midrashic vignettes. So they're sort of they're fictional accounts to try to help people, you know, process the material. So it's not so it's not academic, but it's a story, which is of course what the Bible does. Um, one of the things I was thinking too: can we, from what the writers uh, Obviously, they're they're giving us their interpretation of the events, but I think just as important as the information they give is the stuff they leave out, the gaps. It, it, do you find that to be true? I mean, it, within the gaps, we can find lots of interesting things that they didn't actually say. Uh, I think of uh, I think of gaps in. Uh, three categories. Um, the first category are the gaps that the narrator leaves as part of his narrative art. He expects you to be an attentive reader. He expects you to kind of track with him, and he doesn't have to hit you in the face with everything he wants to say. There are things that he intends you to understand, but that he doesn't say explicitly. That's one kind of gap, and as good interpreters, we should try to fill those the way that the narrator intends us to. A second kind of gap is a cultural gap, and that is there are things that the author does not explain because his intended audience already knows it. Right. So that would be redundant and repetitive, and so he doesn't bother to identify those things. Um, and But, of course, we're not that original intended audience, so we don't understand those things, and that also is a gap that we need to try to fill as best we can. The third kind of gap is one that I'm, I don't think we should try to fill. Those are gaps that have to do with the author's focus. The author's made choices to pursue a particular line of, of story or of argument or of whatever it might be. And that means that he has to leave things out. And um, we might be curious. I mean, they might be plot details. Um, and we might be curious to fill those in. But he's very explicitly not giving you that information because he's trying to keep focused with what he's going to focus on. If we spend a lot of time trying to fill those gaps, we're not going to be tracking with the author, and therefore we're going to be off doing our own thing. So, for example, we can say, wow, here's God. He asks Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac. Well, I wonder what kind of conversation he had with Sarah about all of that. I wonder how that went, you know? What's the back and forth here? Um, you know, when they're walking along the path, Abraham and Isaac, what kind of conversations did they have? See, we're curious about those things, but 
the author has chosen not to give us those things, and there's no way that we can fill those in with any confidence. We can only fill them in with imagination. Right. And if we can't fill them in with confidence, then it's distracting us from the author's intentions. And we're accountable to the author. And therefore, sometimes I think we have to shut our imagination down so that we don't kind of run those bunny trails. So those are gaps that we often try to fill, but that we've got no basis for filling. And so I think that we have to be careful about that just so we can keep our focus on what the author is doing. See, so, that's, one of, that's one of the big points that I've, that I've tried to make when I, when I explain your books and your work, and that is that, you know, there are some things in the Bible that God just was not interested in having communicated to us, and the writer's not going to do that. But also, you have to understand that, and this is a big one, they don't have to, you and I don't, we can have a conversation about computers all day long. And I've said this, I don't know, I don't know, two, three years now. But Moses and I could not have that conversation. And then the flip side of that is Moses can have a conversation with them about uh, Axis Mundi, if you will, and they don't have to have any of that explained to them in terms of the way the world was. I often tell people that if I handed Moses a picture of the earth taken from the Hubble, he wouldn't know what it was. He would think it was pretty, but he wouldn't know what it was, and it wouldn't apply to his understanding of the world. And that's kind of the mind people have to have when we're looking at this. But I want to go back to a point that you talked about with order, because it seems to me that God is always trying to get us back to a point of order in everything he does. The Noah's ship, or if you will, landing on the mountain, uh, Adam and Eve not dying, Jesus, everything has to do with getting us out of chaos and back to order. Dina, you spend a lot of time speaking about that. But, John, you mentioned three different categories in that realm. And I kind of want to hear those again because you often write, what is the purpose? It's a world. They didn't see things based on the way we see things. They looked at it as what is it used for. Can you talk about that? Because they didn't care. They didn't have all the hyperbole and, and, and all the mindset sure. that we, I call it YouTube videos. They didn't care about all that. What is its use and, and, and can it, does it matter? You spent a lot of time talking about that in Genesis 1. Right. Well, the greatest value in the ancient world and in the biblical world is order. And that's, that's what they're always striving for. Order is not a natural condition. The natural condition is non-order. And that's a default, and it's undesirable. It's not immoral. It's not evil. It's just, you know, if you don't clean up your room, it gets pretty cluttered and messy just because it moves to non-order. And yet they desire order. God is the center and source of order, and his creative activity brings order into the midst of non-order. But there's still non-order around, outside the garden, the sea, darkness, they're all issues of non-order. But God has brought order, and that order is good, and God expects people in, created in his image to work alongside him to bring order. Uh, instead, we chose our own path, wanting to build order around ourselves. Back to Dina's wisdom idea, 
the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a tree of wisdom, and that means it's a tree to bring order. And they wanted to bring order for themselves. They couldn't do that in God's garden because that was his ordered space, and so you get them moving out. But anything that works against God's established order is disorder. And so non-order is sort of a, a default position. Disorder is working against the order that's there. And so those are the three main categories, order, non-order, and disorder. And uh, order has to be sustained. Uh, it can't just be left alone and stay ordered. It has to be sustained. And that's God's continuing work in creation and in the world and in history, sustaining order. Uh, but people are inclined to disorder. That is, they work against God's order because they're trying to build order around themselves. And so that's the inherent problem. Um, and, of course, by the time you get to new creation, all is ordered. Uh, the temple is the center of ordered space. Sacred space is sacred because God's there. If God's there, it's the center of order. And so the, uh, the temple is the, the center of ordered space. And therefore, everything that comes in contact with the temple has to be characterized by order. That's why you have the purity laws and the, all of those kinds of issues, uh, why you have limited access. Um, certain status, certain times are required for that ordered world because order is not just space. Order is also time and status. And so in those cases, uh, God, is, um, God is the author and center of order. Wisdom is how we find order. And that's why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, because if you don't start with the fear of God, your wisdom is going to go towards your own order instead of God's order. And Sabbath is all about a day where you set aside your own ordering processes for your own life and think about God's ordering of the cosmos and of your life and of society and of your, of your world. And so Sabbath is that kind of focus on, on order. I love that. That was great. <laughs> well, you yeah. ju you just encapsulated the whole thing. I couldn't. No way, I couldn't have said that better. I think if people really understood that, uh, that to me is groundbreaking, and it's just not an area people have much understanding, and uh, they don't recognize the need to to get that sort of order in their life through wisdom. Um, you know, Dennis Prager was talking about. I was at a conference with him recently. And, uh, you know, obviously the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and now we have people running our government, et cetera, that would have absolutely no wisdom or common sense, and it, everything is just sort of uh, it collapses chaos. Out of order, yeah. And uh, part of what I do as well, I have a ministry called On Fire Prayer, and uh, I, have a, you know, we, I think it's about 4,000 people, but, and I send out prayer needs weekly just praying for our nation to restore order. Um, to me, this is just huge because I, I think this is just where we are. We're just in complete collapse here um, from a lack of wisdom. I really do. Well, we talk, about, we talk about law and order in our world today. And we yeah. look at Torah and we think that it's law, but it's order. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's which, is, which is what your book 
Right. Uh, that's what I loved about the book. It's about establishing order, and you, you kind of have to, we have to get rid of a lot of the emotional stuff that our culture imposes on us, and people tend to look at everything through an emotional lens, which I think is the beginning of failure in terms of maintaining the order of what God has presented to mankind. I mean, it's really, somebody said yesterday at, uh, at our service, um, if, if we don't recognize the order of things, then we're always trying to figure out how to live in disorder. And, I mean, the Bible gives us a perfect road to order in our lives if we just stop looking at everything through an emotional lens and realize that God has a plan and a purpose that restores us to what he's doing. Uh, to me, this is kind of like, it's, it's not, John, for me, a religious thing anymore. It's more of a, it's like, it's like living in the United States of America. We've got all these different religious systems in the United States of America. But we also have the laws. And it doesn't matter what your religious belief is. Go out and run a child over in a crosswalk, and you'll find out exactly how order is brought against you in terms of your disorder. In other words, we have a statute to follow when we align ourselves to God. And when we don't do that, the end result is always going to be disorder. You're going to pay the price for being out of order. It's that simple. I don't understand the, uh, the emotional attachment with regard to understanding our role once we've committed to, the, to walking with Christ. I don't get the lunacy. I don't get it other than to say that in the ancient world, Dina, you've written about this a lot. The ancient world fell apart often because... Mankind went its own way and did its own thing and created chaos. What's well, no different today? We're still part of the story. The story's still being unfolded. We're in the story. But we're so out of order today, Dina. John, how do you feel about the world today? Uh, how do you look at it? Well, again, it's a world in which uh, we've not only gone the path of wanting to make order for ourselves, we've also told ourselves that that's the best thing to do. Um, and whether it's a nation making order for itself at the expense of others, whether it's uh, people uh, making order for themselves uh, at the expense of others, whether they're politicians or crime lords, uh, uh, whether it's uh, even people in the church who want to make things ordered for themselves instead of thinking about the larger issue of God's order, uh, we've we've given great value to order for ourselves. And it even shows up in terms, now I'm going to step on some toes, I'm sure, uh, we talk about the importance of human flourishing. Uh, it's a trendy word today. And just by itself, uh, it sounds wonderful. Human flourishing, of course. But again, at the expense of what and whom. Um, is our flourishing... Uh, something that's uh, more an attempt to build order for ourselves or is it an attempt for us to step into God's order? Uh, that's the question I would ask. I suppose flourishing could be thought of in terms of God's order, but I don't think that's usually what people have in mind. So I, I think the world is really struggling with this idea, but that's the nature of, of things from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden. That's the decision that people made. 
to make themselves the center of order. And we see the, the results of that every day. Dina, we're coming up on about five minutes before the end of the broadcast. Yeah. Uh, once again, before I forget, John, I'm just grateful that you decided to come on out here to the Pacific Northwest and uh, plant a few seeds, if you will, based on your work. I, I think this about reading your work and listening to you uh, now for several years, it just makes sense. It makes sense. To me, it makes sense. Your work makes sense. It's not... It's not all this, um, you know, supernatural stuff. It's like I can actually feel Moses through your work in the writings in Genesis 1. I can get into his head a little bit more, a little bit more, as opposed to the um, just the way we've kind of turned everything into a theological discussion as opposed to this is what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about some great big giant thing. He's just making a simple statement. I get it. Dina, how many times have we said, I said, Dina, this makes sense. It makes sense. John's well, work I makes think, sense. And, and the, the thing I always say, I mean, people just want the Bible to make sense. And let's be real, from our approach, there's an awful lot in there that doesn't make any sense. So uh, for me, personally, un understanding the ancient culture and again, uh, with John's book, the Torah, viewing it through the lens of wisdom, all of those things have kind of come together, and this is what I try to share with people, looking at various narratives, et cetera, in the Bible and going, okay, from this perspective, look how this makes sense now. I think there's so much around us that is just chaos that makes no sense that seeing the Bible in these terms has, has just been groundbreaking. But it's difficult because people don't want to hear this. I mean, people are pretty well cemented in their boxes. And uh, maybe just we close out with this, John. I, I can only imagine you travel all around the world. Uh, I'm sure there are many that don't agree with you. Uh, just what has been the, the uh, predominant response to your material, to your approach, um, to what you're trying to show people that the Bible is actually saying? Mm -hmm. Well, there's certainly um, certain groups of people that don't like me at all. Um, that that includes, of course, young earth creationists. It includes people who think that the Bible is all we need and that to bring the ancient Near East in is imposing something foreign. Uh, so there are people who uh, just have a different hermeneutic and want to come at the text differently. And there are a few fairly prominent voices out there who are consistently um, detractors from what I say. Right. Uh, on the other hand, I get emails almost every day from people who have a depreciation for what I do. Um, you know, I don't follow the blogs to find out all the negative things people are saying about me. That happens. That's you know, good. Somebody, Why would somebody, you? <laughs> somebody said the other day, Walton stuff hasn't gotten any traction. I'm saying, how many people did you interview for that? Uh, what's the scientific nature of your poll? What do you mean there's no traction? It seems to me that there's a lot of traction in the fact that I'm out 20 times a year going to Christian schools and seminaries, traveling all around the world, uh, and people who want to hear this. That seems right. to me that it could be called traction. But at any rate, um, so there's a mixed bag, of course. You can't talk about things that are controversial like this without making 
enemies. Um, yeah. I don't consider them enemies, but they apparently consider me one. Um, but that's that's going to happen. Um, you you're just going to get people. Some people riled up. My hope is that that's far outweighed by people who are really helped by all of what I have to say. And you know that's that's what I do it for. Amen, and we so appreciate it. Uh, we're very excited about you coming to Washington, yep. and, uh, and and you as well. Dina. I can't wait. You're coming too, Dina. Dina's in New Mexico, John. So but honestly, coming. if I wasn't even speaking, I wouldn't care because right. to me, this is a grand opportunity. So right. I'm I'm delighted to have both of you because I respect both of your work. Uh, and for me, John, to to go back to what you said a moment ago, I am a black conservative who believes in the ancient world, who loves your work, and who is 100% for studying the Bible. So I get hit from just about every corner of, of the country <laughs> with people who don't like me for one reason or another. On the other hand, and I'm sure the two of you will agree with this, learning this, it just creates such a great expectation for the coming of our king. And it's kind of impossible to not celebrate our lives for being gifted this opportunity to know that. I leap out of my bed every morning with enthusiasm and excitement to keep learning more about our king. I, I mean, isn't that, does that, am I the only one like that, John? Are you like that? Do you get up every day jumping for an opportunity to do this and serve the king? Amen. Amen, I don't know if I'm jumping, but I'm excited. <laughs> oh. Well, listen, John Walton's going to be excited to get going every day. Absolutely. Amen. We've got John Walton coming here September the 8th. He'll be speaking from 9 o'clock. We'll have a lunch break. Uh, you guys are welcome to go get lunch somewhere else. We tried to keep the cost down for the conference, so we're not providing you with a meal. And then he'll be speaking until about 4 o'clock starting at 1.30-ish. Uh, and uh, probably take some questions and whatnot. And then he'll be hanging around uh, for Dina's conversation the following day. So we're looking forward to all of you getting registered as soon as possible for the Lost World Conference. And, Dina, I'll give you the last word. <laughs> Shalom. <laughs> John Walton, thank you very much for coming on this morning. Dina as well. Thanks, Jeff. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Off to your picnic, John. I didn't get walking. I look forward to meeting both of you in person. You know, I didn't get a chance to ask you about Australia. How was Australia? It was great. <laughs> Had a great time. I guess I we'll hear there. more later. I was, I was there about 40 years ago. Yeah. I think it's one yeah. of the most amazing countries on the yeah. planet. But we'll see you guys in a, in a few weeks. Yep, will do. God bless you guys. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.